Hello, welcome to Cracker Comics Weekly, episode 54. I'm Mike, joined alongside Daniel and Vincent. And uh, we, we've started a new thing where I ask, gentlemen, how how was your week this week before we get into the books? Uh, it was very annoying, kind of miserable, long week. There's a lot of snow this week. That too. I didn't even barely go outside. Actually, no, I did have a snow escapade. So one of our personal friends bought some books from me. And first of all, it, it's not that many books, but they were huge books. So first I had to figure out, do I want to risk putting these books in a, in a single box and risking potential shenanigans with like a 25 pound box, like the post office inspecting it or damages or whatever, even though I packed it well. I ended up going with two boxes. Um, then I had it all packed up and everything. And then I just had a nightmare work day. So I didn't get around to dropping them off the post office. Then the next day, it's snowing like crazy starting in the morning. But I'm like, all right, fuck it. I'm going to risk it. And so I took the packages, dropped them off the post office, seemed to be fine. And, and then it kept snowing. That's my snow story. Any snow story for you this week, Dan? Um, I had to go into work every day despite the snow because, uh, you know, I had to risk my own safety to be a safety supervisor. So let that one sink in for you. But it wasn't and that bad, actually. You're doing a service to the people to keep them safe. You're, yeah. you're the real hero. Yep. So that was fun. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'll be happy when we don't get three consecutive days of snow. I I'm ready for winter to be over. But uh, we had a pretty big week of books. The trio is back. Dan wasn't here last week. He's back again now. And uh, I think it's fitting that Dan's back, but also we liked the first four issues of Black Widow. And that book was on a little bit kind of a hiatus, like weird hiatus. And then it was delayed, but now it's back. And uh, Vince will kick off talking about Black Widow number five. Yes, in the fifth issue by Kelly, Don Kelly Thompson and Elena Casagrande. The end of last issue, we saw Natasha's family all blown up. So they flipped the switch, and now our squad of spy-type heroes starts picking off all these villains who've been conspiring together one by one. Hawkeye is using explosive arrows here that are exploding right next to people's faces. He's shooting other people in the eye. Granted, it's pretty badass. He, like, the arrow goes through their sniper scope. There's a great splash page of Hawkeye in the air shooting people and, and like a montage of Black Widow kicking ass. Nat lets Red Guardian get away because of their personal history. And then Hawkeye blows up even more people. And to be honest, my like old man triggered comic book fan brain was kind of getting annoyed at all that because it's like, like I understand, you know, you think, okay, he's using a bow and arrow, but like Hawkeye doesn't, he's not really supposed to like go around killing people. So I was actually like beginning to question and cross the line on that, but it was all a fake out. It was a hologram projection type of thing. Uh, and in the meantime, Bucky whisked away the family and disappeared them to the Pacific Northwest. But this series is taking place in San Francisco. So they're like only a state or two away. Um, it's kind of weird. Nat is obviously still bummed. You know, even though she knows that her family didn't actually die. And she has a touching moment with Bucky where, you know, they kind of tap into their past relationship. Um, and that's mostly 
keying in on parts from like Ed Brubaker's Captain America, but more so his Winter Soldier series. And there's been little touches of that since then. I think maybe there is like a tiny bit of that in Mark Wade's Black Widow and, and other things. Um, but she does go back to rescue her cat, which somehow was fine through all the mess. And she and Yelena are hanging out, figuring out what Nat's going to do next now that she's, you know, out of the brainwashing. She decides against revenge and further tracking down all the villains. At least that's the story for now. And that's where this arc and this issue ends. The next issue is a new arc, but also the first part of the new arc is using a fill-in artist. Kind of annoying, though they do promise Casa Grande will be back with the next issue. Also, they're debuting a new suit for Natasha, which, I mean, it's not horrendous looking, but like this Black Widow suit, which I believe was designed by Gene Colan in, this, in like the early 70s, is like very, actually, I think it was designed in Amazing Spider-Man. So it's probably like um, Gil Kane, maybe? I don't know. But it's a very classic suit, stands the test of time. I don't know. I don't, I don't really like this new suit. Um, and then just generally, like my reaction to this arc, I kind of said this on previous issues. I get Black Widow. She's a super spy type. She has guns. So as backward as it sounds, her stories can be more lethal and you know more realistic than, say, Spider-Man or Hulk, even though you'd think those characters you know, would have greater stakes. But ultimately, like, the message of this arc is is basically, if you're a superhero, you can't have a family, at least if you're Black Widow. And, I mean, there, there was nothing wrong about how that story was told and how it was drawn. Everything there was really great, but totally like the overall message of this. I mean, if this, you know, if there was a Spider-Man story with this message, well, not if, we've had that story. We've had that story with Batman and those stories. I don't like those. And even though Black Widow is not one of my my absolute favorite characters or, you know, a top tier character in terms of popularity, I would personally apply the same rules. I think I think it's fine if superheroes have families and you can figure out how to write it that way. Um, but the story was good. How I mean, I I was having some technical stuff, so I didn't hear all of what you're saying. I didn't notice a clear difference in the either artist who was on this so nah, at least yeah if both artists are in the same wheelhouse and both were good uh it still looks great uh the new costumes okay that it's in that realm of like why does everything need a hood but other than that like i'm fine it's it you know this opening art essentially sets the bar and tone for the rest of what kelly thompson intends to do and i'm down with it so i'm sticking along with it i i enjoyed the the first arc and i thought it was good yeah, I'm definitely sticking. Yeah, I think I am too. The black cat at the end uh, reminds me of Edmondson's run a little bit because I think there was a cat that was in her in that run as well. Um, but no, I mean, I like this. I really like the art too. I mean, just some of the, like, the shots in the, in the beginning, like in the warehouse or wherever they were at, kind of coming down. I thought that was like a really cool splash page there, kind of. But I don't know. I think it's worth it. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna keep uh, watch, or reading it instead of watching. The hell. No, I mean you could watch it. I mean, I guess I don't know. It's it's a weird media thing now. You're too hung up on watching one division. I'm guessing that's what it is. Yeah, I just actually watched that tonight. Yeah, because you, know? you 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 can't watch Black Widow, but maybe someday. 
are <laughs> oh, still logo. saying May, right? May's yeah. the magic date. But I'll take us into our next book. Batman Catwoman number three. It's the third issue from Tom King, Clayman, Tom Amori. So this one kind of centers mostly on Helena Wayne, the new Batwoman. We've saw her very, very almost like cameo appearances in King's other Batman work, but she's kind of here in the forefront. I mean, the whole first opening page is opening page splash with her standing on a rooftop with Commissioner Dick Grayson. So that's an interesting uh, take that uh, they're doing the Gotham future with. But overall, Batwoman's working the case of the Joker's death and suspecting that, you know, Selina has a a hand playing and uh, killing the Joker. So she's like taken off to Florida to go see if there's any evidence that connects her. And then, you know, heading with that, because we have the three different running timelines. Catwoman's attacked by Phantasm because we're definitely there's now something she was involved with Joker somehow in the death of Andrea's son. So that's why she's like attacked alone at the manor one night when Bruce was out as matches Malone. And then a lot of this still focusing on that relationship between Selena and Joker. And it's almost like she's cheating on Bruce with the Joker, but it, it's not in like a romantic way. It's, it's kind of this weird and perverse one uh, where, where Joker is kind of playing her morality where he's like, he, he keeps tempting her asking her, are you more like Catwoman or more like Batman? And eventually that's going to come to a head here. Though we do see Batman in costume only once here where he confronts the Joker about uh, the death of one of his henchmen that was murdered by Phantasm. But uh, I do like the Joker stuff. I like the Joker confronting Selina about the, the double life thing. I like that. Um, I like that Hel- uh, Helena showed up here. But overall, like I like the issue, but uh, I don't know. It's, you know, it's the Tom King book where I'm like, I want more answers now, but it's a 12 issue maxi and I got to be along for the ride. The issue does close with uh, Helena telling her mother over dinner that the crime scene was clean and that her mother is cleared for now. But like she clearly, you know, she is Bruce and Selena's daughter. So she still thinks that something's up. And, you know, there's definitely a connection between Joker and Bruce's deaths, as it's stated here, that they were mere, like mere days apart from one another. But overall, I'm still liking it. So, gentlemen, thoughts on Batman Catwoman number three, which really is like Catwoman Joker at this point. Not a lot of Batman in this series. Yeah, I was about to say that. Like, this really felt more like a Catwoman book than really anything else. Uh, Second straight book, too, with a black cat in it. So, I'm not sure that's probably bad luck, I guess. But, yeah, and just, I don't know. I mean, this is nothing to really comment too much about, but... Like there's a tad too much cheesecake going on in this issue. A I bit. was waiting for one of us was going to have to mention that. I, yeah. I'll, I'll keep it short. That's not a costume. Yeah, uh, I was that's say. a bodysuit with a chest protector on it. I mean, Mike, Mike's Mike's talking about Helena's. What do they give her name in here? Is she called Batwoman or is she it's, called Huntress? It's, Bat, it's Batwoman. Okay. Yeah, so her costume, she's like it's you know skin tight um and it's mostly it's mostly a lot of people have been focusing particularly on the crotch area where you know usually i mean i honestly would have looked better if they just put like trunks on her like i there's there's a weird element of putting trunks on a on a female character because obviously it's a totally different dynamic but obviously she's the daughter of batman so like you may have you probably could have figured out like a cool way to do it um and i would actually be less concerned with that than this where it's just like skin tight down to there. There's one shot 
where again, skin tight. So you just see her whole butt cheeks. And literally, I, I, I think it's not 100% clear if, uh, if Clayman is trying to draw the thong it's or, pretty or underwear clear. underneath. I'm not 100% clear if that was his intention or if it's just awkwardly looks like that. And he was just trying to draw how like the wrinkles around her you know, body fits and everything like that. But it looks weird. But it's not just her. I mean, there are, and, and it's not just the, the costume and everything. It's the entire storytelling and, and depiction of these characters in the book. I mean, there's the costume design, but there, the, that shot was chosen where you see her butt cheeks very highlighted. There's a shot chosen where she's like gliding through the city and it's just a straight upskirt. There's at least two others for Helena, but then even for Selena. Yeah. I, that, like, I felt like those ones were worse. There's there's one there's one scene where like Bruce and her are in bed and whatever, this is black label, like that's fine. But there it's the particular shots, and to be clear, like I don't necessarily have a problem with it. I'll get to that in a second. But there's certain shots, especially when the phantasm shows up and is like kind of attacking Selena and stuff where like her clothes are ripped, there are specific angles shown, her whole butt takes up a quarter of a, a quarter of a panel from a specific angle. And, and it's, it's not just Helena's costume design. More, I think the, the I'm not gonna say issue, but the bigger point of potential concern for people are all of these panels and the, the angles. And I have no idea specifically how Tom King works. You know, certain scripts will be like, five panels to this page, this panel is a medium length shot from this perspective, blah, blah, blah. I don't know that he does that. I no, would imagine he, not. No, we know. He just like writes Batman and Joker fight. And that's, yeah, so, that's, that's his extent. So yeah, so it's, it's probably most of it is Clay Man. I mean, I imagine that Tom was saying like, you know, obviously, obviously she's in bed. So obviously Selena's going to be in, you know, like, you know, bedwear or whatever. But yeah, I, I just think it's it's almost funny in a weird way because I feel like Tom has built up this reputation within the industry where all of his stuff is very serious and you wouldn't necessarily expect like this kind of cheesecake from him. And you just would expect that all of the artists he associates with are kind of in that lane. But we saw the exact same comments in Heroes in Crisis with Clay Mann's depiction of Batgirl, if I recall. Yeah. Um, so it's just a Clay Man thing. I don't necessarily have a problem with it. I just think it's slightly funny that Tom King and DC's marketing department kind of have, you know, pumped up his works and this series as like this, you know, this serious, almost literary-esque take on Batman and everything. He's doing all these non-sequential storytelling and everything like that. And then the art is like <laughs> cheesecakey. I think it's yeah. funny. I don't personally have that much of an issue with any of it, except that I think the Helena costume is just a terrible design, but not specifically even because it's so skin tight. I think it just looks terrible. Well, my other thing with it too, is we had a different design that I, I can't remember. I think it was Lee Weeks uh, who depicted her in one of the annuals and the colors are changed because on how, and obviously this could be at two different places of time because, you know, we have the three running time things going on here, but uh, the the symbol was red and the eyes were red and I liked that. Here it's the the symbol is yellow and the eyes are yellow. Uh, it's you know slight differences. It's kind of a Batman Beyond esque take because there's no cape and she's got the the flying wings, which all right that's cool. Um, but 
because I don't want to spend more time talking about art in this fashion, but uh, I will say for Batman, he has, and I guess it might be Tom Amori. I don't know who did, who made the decision, but Batman has like light blue colored eyes in this. And it's one of those like small things that I'm just like, it's a different thing that I haven't seen a lot of people do before, but I do like it. So there's a lot of things going on in this book, but overall I, I still enjoy it. I just got one quick uh, comment that I want to throw out there. Cause I, I, I searched to find that old costume, which I like that costume. It was very much more inspired by Kate Kane's Batwoman costume. Yeah. Which So I kind of understand why they wouldn't, if they wanted to revise it, why they would want to make it not as associated with Kate. But the DC wiki technically categorizes like the this future timeline, like Tom King stuff, as they haven't assigned Earth to it or anything because DC hasn't, obviously. But right. it, it'll it, it's in parentheses last rights, which I guess was probably the story title. Of yeah, that it was last, yeah, that was the story title. Uh, so our next issue is Captain America number 27, written by Tanahasi Coates. Artist is Leonard Kirk. So our story opens to Cap making a speech after being exonerated as a bunch of fellow heroes watch in on TV, as well as the Red Skull and his daughter. Uh, we get this really cool splash page where Red Skull kind of puts on his mask or whatever. So that's that, that's pretty dope. Uh, driving back from the exoneration, Cap and Sharon uh, discuss their outlook on how the world sees Cap before heading off to a cap rally in Central Park where they are actually like rioting against Captain America. And during this time, Cap is using like some type of like facial cloaking device, although it doesn't really look much different than what he normally looks like. Um, There's kind of scouting out like the, the rioters that they think that there's some type of funny business going on here at this riot and or rally, I guess. And uh, Sharon's like in like cloaking herself like this Iron Man suit kind of. So meanwhile, Red Skull starts monologuing to his daughter while we are shown Cap and Sharon ambushing the rally. Uh, turns out that somebody plants a bomb and it goes off, killing a bunch of people, all Civil War style, I guess. They, they kind of show a page that reminds me of it a little bit, like where they show like the silhouettes of everyone getting blown up or something. So. Obviously, the media starts framing Cap as Red Skull, or never mind, <laughs> I, I read that wrong. Anyways, they start framing uh, Cap, and uh, Red Skull takes to the media and proclaims that Cap is public enemy number one, and that they should all turn against him and take him down. So, I, I'm curious to see when Coates wrote this book, because it's... It reference it really touches on a lot of stuff that from recent American history. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, so if it was made after January six or yeah January six, then I guess it's accurate. But... Well, I I do want to correct you, Dan. You say they're going to a Captain America rally. They're all carrying red skull signs at that rally. It's not a Captain America rally. Oh well, I guess it was like a we hate Captain America rally. I guess. Yeah, I it's it's pro <laughs> red skull because they're carrying red skull signs there. Yeah, I kind of like the plot. I mean, it, the whole run has been very, even going back to like the first arcs, Coates has had like the semi, and I, I'm not even going to go semi, it's been pl- pretty overt on some stances and, you know, political commentary and current things. Uh, so I'm, I don't think this was, you know, by coincidence. Uh, I, 
like I'm fine with it. Um, I it's a it's one of those things because like Skull has a speech and he's just like you're captain of nothing, and you look at it like Skull at this point in the story like Red Skull's not wrong right now, but I want but obviously you know I'm I'm reading Captain America he's gonna you know he's gonna beat up the Red Skull again, and then so forth for the you know longer than we'll ever be alive and you know rinse repeat wash again, but. I like the plan of like, okay, let's turn the PR and make Captain America out to be the bad guy. My only issue with it is like, didn't we just do this with when he went to jail and he just got exonerated? It felt like a step forward and five steps back. Uh, This one was, this issue was definitely more centered on Steve than Sharon than the last like five issues have been. So I don't know, Dan, outside of Leonard Kirk's art being like fine, nothing much to comment on. I felt this was a fine reset. Like, I think I was getting bored with the book, but since but since we wrapped up the whole rescue Sharon Carter slash Peggy Carter deal with Red Hulk, like, and we're getting back to the Red Skull stuff that, you know, harkens back to the Brubaker, the Brubaker run. But at the same time, like, it felt, it feels like this is just like redone Brubaker in a way. Like, this is, like, I've kind of seen all this before. Yeah. I mean, I think for the, the, the casual comic goer, I think this is a good spot to come into. It's funny. We actually talked about this right before we came on air about uh, issues that are kind of hard to get into and hard to pick up. But this one, I feel like, is a really easy one for someone who knows just a little bit of background on Cap to kind of walk in and understand. But, yeah, obviously, this this story feels simple. And if it, I haven't read Brubaker's run yet, although I did just get the first omnibus for him. But, um, There's so much of this run that borrows from it, going back to Alexander Lucan and every, it's all pulled from it. Yeah, it just feels like it's been told before. So, yeah, a lot of the stuff Skull's doing is kind of what he was doing back in that run too. It was. I'm I'm wondering how Coates is going to play it. I still like it. Uh, still sticking with it. Yep. And this was a fine reset to head into 2021 because this was another book that was like on like a hiatus for a little bit. Um, yeah. And then and that this and Black Widow both came back this week. But I'll go into Thor. Thor number 12. Donnie Cates, Nick Klein, Matt Wilson. This is part four of Prey. We get a really cool fight between Donald Blake and Throg as he is. He's kind of fending himself off and he's getting the help of Lockjaw and they're like teleporting all around the planet, which is pretty cool. The focus, though, goes back to Jane Foster as she's wondering who can she contact because something's definitely going up when uh, when Donald Blake met her. Uh, she's trying to call Iron Man, but it, she doesn't have the number now because he had to change it because Thor gave it to everyone uh, back in like that. I think that was like Thor number eight or something. Um, but Throg blasts near her as well as an injured Doctor Strange. They both lost to Donald Blake, and he's grown stronger because he's stealing all these different Asgardian magic energies and now he knows the source lies in the world tree where he's going to go try to destroy that. And Thor's trapped in there. So Jane turns into Valkyrie and is able to like escape Donald Blake and heads back to this bar in like the Midwest where Odin's just chilling out. And he's like, Hey, uh, time to go save your son. So it's the, it's the reintroduction of Odin. Who's kind of been at MIA since the end of uh, war of the realms. And I kind of like Odin just hanging out on Midgard uh, so, and then, you know, they're going to have to go team up to save Thor and fight Donald Blake. I like that Donnie Cates isn't shy away from bringing in the other, like, Thor, uh, you know, Thor-powered characters. We saw Thunderstrike. We've seen Throg. Now it's, it'll be fun to see Odin and eventually Thor will get out and we'll, we'll see, we'll see him here. I, I mean, and once again, like Nick Klein's art 
Uh, the fight scenes are great, and Matt Wilson's colors are good. This is a good comic book, uh, so I highly enjoy it. And I highly enjoy Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon. This is the second issue by Larry Hama and Dave Wachter. So the hidden eighth city is up to some nefarious shit. So to stop it, all the other cities need to be manifested on Earth. And the other immortal weapons who haven't been killed or disabled already are now part of the team, along with Luke, Cage, and um, crap, what's her name? I think Faye. Iron Fist's like kind of pseudo daughter and other heroes are going to need to get involved too, though we don't get to any of that yet. Kind of, uh, the Shang-Chi villain Midnight Sun shows up. He's one of the bad guys. We've already seen Taskmaster. We've seen Lady Bullseye. Not a ton actually happens in this issue, to be honest, though one of the cities appears near Wakanda. So it's set up that Okoye is going to be one of the characters involved, which I mean, cool. It's fine. I mean, I, I feel like Black Panther is a little bit too, like, like a little bit on a tier too high to get involved in this book, which is like, even though this is like a huge stakes plotline, ultimately, it's still like kind of going for a street level characters kind of vibe. So it makes sense to bring in Okoye, and I'm interested to see what other characters are going get to ra- get wrapped in here. This one had a lot less action as well as less plot momentum than the first issue, but still pretty much all the positive notes I had. I love how Larry Hama writes these characters. I like how he's pulling all kinds of, you know, little elements and references from throughout Iron Fist lore and also like little other pieces of Marvel Universe that are relevant or, kept, or you know, make sense to fit in here. And the art by Dick Walker is really good as well. And in this issue, we get a little bit more of the like, trippy iron fist you know like seventh city heaven and all that kind of junk um so there's a little bit of a little bit of more diversity in the art style as well as a lot of that probably comes down to the coloring as well so this was a this was a good issue yeah i agree with what you said i mean this this definitely does maintain the momentum from the first issue i feel like and uh i I like the coloring as well i I don't know what it is like the rendering it just it came out really nice i feel like it it fits with the with like the mood and the story of this book yeah i guess okoye being in here it feels a little bit like hey she's an mcu person let's find a way to integrate her in here without actually introducing black panther like let's get another group another main character involved but i don't think it's like too over the head to make it feel like it's it's shoehorned into this book but yeah i don't know I, i'm I, I never thought i would say this but i'm gonna be sticking around for a third issue of this iron fist series i don't really read a lot of iron fist stuff but this has me intrigued so and like you said the art is just pretty stellar still so all around really pleasantly surprised by this book and with that I will transition to something that I'm not pleasantly surprised by. And I will actually be jumping off one issue before its conclusion. So sorry, Jeff Lemire and Phil Hester. Great, great creative team. Just don't have it this time, I guess. Oh, anyways, our next issue is Family Tree number 11, written by Jeff Lemire, art by Phil Hester and Eric Gapster. Our story opens back in time to when a bunch of guys are attacking the tree. Uh, which is, I guess, is, is Megan, and the tree is able to fend them off, but falls down in the process. Meanwhile, Josh, um, who is Megan's brother, saves his mom, Loretta, from the governmental people who are try- out to find Megan, the tree. 
back in time again, we go and um, Josh and Loretta are trying to move Megan. Like they literally like have to pick up the entire tree, put it onto like, a back of a pickup truck and like drive it somewhere with the help of this woman called Sarah, who I believe was like her father was one of the people that was killed or something by Megan, which is weird. I don't know why she's helping these people. But anyways, uh, we then get Josh monologuing as we all love to hear in comics about how his world ended up ended as the governmental people come for Megan this time with like flamethrowers in hand, blow torches, whatever you want to call them. Uh, again, like Mike alluded to earlier, this is one of those books that I think suffered from, I don't maybe I'm wrong, but I think this book got delayed too. This story like started back like early in like 2020 last year. So it should have wrapped up by now. And I think the last issue is the 12th issue, which is next issue, obviously. But half of me kind of wants to read the last one just to see what, how it ended, ends. But a lot of my feelings on this issue kind of suffer from the fact that it's been like months since I've read the last part of this story. And I just I'm having a hard time trying to piece together some of the stuff going on here. Like every time I read this, I feel like I'm trying to learn the, all the names of the characters for the first time again. And it's like, uh, but I don't know. That's all I got for Family Tree. Yeah, uh, you're the you're the last one that was still on this, and uh, you're now the last one to leave it. I think Vince left it like issue seven. I jumped out around I think nine or ten. So yeah, you're you're the last one holding on here. You know, it, overall, just just a book that wasn't going anywhere fast enough. So maybe I'll come back to it and trade, but. Head to the next issue, Immortal Hulk Flatline number one, which is all by Declan uh, Declan Shalvey. Uh, another Immortal Hulk one shot, and this might be the best one yet. Uh, Shalvey's writing and drawing here, as I stated before, but a pretty simple story, but it's executed really, really well. Uh, Bruce Banner's working as like a dishwasher in a whatever town when he's visited by one of his old professors who wants to talk to him, and he can sense that she has like gamma energy. Um, and she wants to talk to him about about him, but he he like he keeps dodging the questions. And eventually, you know, night rolls around to when the Hulk can come out, and that's when she reveals that she's all she's got like what basically is gamma telekinesis. So she and the Hulk like end up having this huge fight while she's trying to basically do it's like a therapy session almost. Um, and it gets to the point where she gets to into like enter into talking to Bruce, revealing that the, basically what the bonds that hold them together is each of what keeps them apart and that the gamma is like the one thing that binds all of them. And the next day Bruce wakes up on top of a hospital and it's revealed that she had uh she had cancer. I'm guessing that's uh cancer from the, the gamma radiation. Cause she was one of the people that helped like clean up the scene after uh, you know, the accident that got Bruce to turn into the Hulk. Uh, but he's able to go down and like say goodbye uh, and get one last mention uh, from his mentor Really, really good stuff. This was like this was pick of the week contention for me. Uh, me and Vince read this. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I wasn't. I don't think I was impressed as it as you were based on what you said. Um, yeah, I like. I thought the writing. It just he was going for like an ambitious kind of message, um, and I think he just didn't entirely land it for me personally. I mean, obviously, Declan. He's he's gotten a lot more into writing recently. You know, it, that's, it's still pretty new to him, you know, writing for comics. And I thought the art was great. 
I didn't fully connect with this old woman character and like the whole, like, you know, the, the depression health, you know, that kind of message. It just didn't completely land for me. Okay. No, I mean, I think the, the writing was not as strong as the art. I thought the art was really, really good. That was that, that when I talk about the execution, I thought the, the execution and the art is what, is what made it better. Uh, some of those pages near the end, like his, his double page splashes were really, really good. You know, another Immortal Hulk one shot. And I think if you read all of these with me at this point, I can't remember if you maybe missed one or two. I mean, off the top of my head, I can't really recall specific ones. Um, I feel there's the like... Jeff Lemire one, and there's the, the King in Black one, and I feel like there was another one. I'm not sure. I, I think I missed a couple. I don't know if you would count the She-Hulk book in that category. I didn't read that. Yeah, I would. I, I would throw that in there because it was a one-shot. I didn't read that. Um, I read, I think it was the Jeff Lemire one, which was like mostly silent, maybe. I liked that, that one. Was the, that was the Christmas one. Um, I mean, I've liked most of them. I think I've, I think I've read most of them. All right. No, the, one, the ones that aren't by, I think I've read the ones that are not by you. Yeah. Yeah. You he, read those. He's done one or two. So I, I skipped those because I assume they're more connected to, you know, the right. main store. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll bring Dan back to talk about Iron Man number six. Me. So first off, before I start this recap, I got to say, this cover, probably one of the best covers I've seen in an Iron Man book in a while. Not just because it's Alex Ross, but just because of the way it looks. I just love it. So uh, anyone out there, go check it out. It's pretty dope. Anyways, our next issue is Iron Man number six, written by Christopher Cantwell, art by Cafu, colors by Frank Diarmada. So Iron Man is being transported by laundry cart to a taxi by Patsy Walker. So from last issue... Tony got beat up pretty bad by Cor- Corvac, and he has a broken neck. Not a good, <laughs> not a good thing. So meanwhile, Tony's ragtag team of heroes actually survived the bomb from last issue since Gargoyle shielded them all. So plot device for the win. Corvac's uh, actually, but also Gargoyle is very er, injured pretty badly. Uh, so Korvac's team makes arrangements to travel to Ta-2, as we mentioned before, because Korvac's trying to go after Galactus, kill him or something, or, or take his power. So they're making arrangements to leave in this jet when Rhodey actually escapes. Keep in mind, Rhodey also had three controller discs on his head, and he's still able to overcome that and, and escape. So shout out to Rhodey for being a straight-up G. So he escapes captivity only to be chased after by the guardsmen. So, yeah, Guardsman, guys, is in an Iron Man book. I'm very excited to hear that. So, anyways, back with the group, Iron Man gets patched up despite his neck injury, and it's determined now more than ever to go after Korvac. So we get a really cool splash page about you know him kind of being like, I'm going after him because I'm Iron Man. Because, you know, movie synergy, why not? So Patsy's having visions of Korvac's perfect, perfect world as Iron Man tries to snap her out of it. Uh, Rhodey shows up and tries to get Tony to tag out from this battle with Korvac, saying that he has his own group that's going to go after him and take him down, and that him trying to go after him in the condition he is in is just asking for more pain and possibly death. So turns out Guardsman shows up, like crashes through the ceiling, and like bursts in the middle of this argument between Rhodey and Tony, 
And like the best part of this whole issue is when like the guardsman shows up, ready to like throw down, and then Iron <laughs> Tony just like pops him and like throws him over like three cars into the wall, and then he's just like, "Oh yeah, um, also by the way, you're not getting me out of this fight." Uh, I guess that was his like proof to Rhodey that he's still ready to fight. So Rhodey's just like, "All right, well, let's go find a jet and let's go after Korvac." So plot wise not a lot really happens in this issue. It's just like kind of everyone licking their wounds and getting ready for the upcoming battle. So the, the cover is a little misleading really, but yeah, I really loved it. Really loved that scene with, with uh, the the guardsmen just getting beat. But uh, yeah, this, this, I just love this run so far by Chris Cantwell. I, I think they really have a good thing. This whole group going, the art is just amazing. I still love it. I love the new suit design. It's still modern, but still has like that old, like that old feel kind of from like the classic suit. So yeah, the part with like the broken neck, it just felt really like tense, like, like him explaining like, Oh, they had to like torque my like helmet because if, if they don't like I could bleed out or something. It's like, it's so like in depth and I just, I love it. I love this run. Don't derail it. Marvel, please. It's really good. Uh, you, I think the better part, though, was the almost silent sequence at the beginning, uh, just with Cafu's art and just with the lettering uh, to set up that scene. I thought that was the really good opening shot. And then Cantwell does the the Tom King Batman thing where Tony gets up and he gives the I'm still here speech like Batman does in I Am Bane. And uh, very striking similar to the both, both pages look similar. So I'm wondering if... Uh, Cantwell took a took a nod from that. Probably not, but they are similar enough that it got in my head. Uh, really good issue. Yeah, this was great. I do very much appreciate that all these characters did not die in between the issues, though they did a successful tease at the end of last issue. But I'm happy that you know that was not the conclusion. And the one thing is they one of the characters talks about, hey, maybe we, you know, we don't want to bring in the big guns you know, other heroes, which Brody brings up again. And I still don't 100% understand why that's not a thing besides the fact that this is an Iron Man book and they don't want it to be an Avengers book. But one of the characters says, hey, why can we bring in some cosmic people? Um, and so I assume that will come back up again. So you can make your bets now on guest characters. Could be some like Guardians of the Galaxy types. Who knows? Obviously with the Korvac, there's history of the original Guardians which I'm not 110% certain on their continuity nowadays. You know, presumably they're not in the present. But obviously, you know, Korvac is connected to the original Guardians, but we could see the modern Guardians and kind of do the sideways connection. So it'll be interesting to see what other interesting characters Cantwell pulls in. I would say my last point is, Dan, I know you love this cover, but I felt like the cover to issue five was better than this one. That was just my two cents. They've all been good. I, I feel like this has been some strong Alex Ross covers every single issue of the series, more so than some of the more recent stuff that we've seen from him. Oh, yeah. Haha. Uh, second issue of this series by Max W. Maxwell Prince. And each issue has been a different artist. This one is the mainstream periodical comics debut of artist Zoe Thorogood. Her debut graphic novel came out a couple months ago. And besides like some variant covers for like Boom or IDW or something, and literally only like two or three of them, this is, you know, her next work. And so she has a very 
you know, she's relatively new, uh, very sparse bibliography. So interested to see this. I haven't read her graphic novel. So we have two timelines here. So in the present, we're at a bizarre burlesque show or a freak show, if you will, essentially, but with like a burlesque angle. There's a woman with super long fingernails and she's kind of like the uh, opening act. And our, our main character, Rudolph, a.k.a. Rudy, uh, it's a woman. She's our main character here. And then we get to the flashbacks. Her mother had some kind of mental break when Rudy was a kid, started putting on clown makeup and ran away with her daughter in search of a circus where she would be accepted and, you know, everything like that. Along the road, they're kind of struggling, you know, getting to place to place so that they can eventually get to their end goal. And she's basically prostituting herself. And at one point, she brings a John back to her motel room and is like, hey, Rudy, my like child, stay in the bathroom for like 30 minutes and I'll be I'll get you out in a minute. But, you know, the kid's obviously really confused. And after her mom teaching her how to shave her legs, essentially like a bit ago, the kid grabs the razor and there's, you know, there's a misunderstanding and the John like freaks out, slaps the kid. So then the mother kills the guy. And it turns out they finally get to the circus and it's shut down. Uh, it went out of business. So the mother gets hauled off to a mental institution. And then also she has a stroke and dies. And then Rudy, I guess, like sort of follows in her mom's footsteps and ends up at a gimmicky burlesque. Uh, ends up as this gimmicky burlesque dancer with her name as Rudolph. So she wears a nose and puts on makeup. It's a pretty fucked story. Um, the art was great, though. And the next issue is a, is going to be about a mime with art by Roger Langridge, who has very diverse styles. He does all kinds of things. I think he wrote like all the Muppet comics for Marvel. Um, and I forget, he, do, he does all kinds of things. Um, he's done some Rocketeer comics and things like that. So, yeah, this issue, I think, very different vibe from the first one. The first one had a little bit of like a, not really a horror angle, but I guess really this series is just supposed to be super depressing rather than like anything horror, which you may have expected, you know, coming from Ice Cream Man. And obviously clowns have developed this like horror aesthetic in popular culture as they become less popular and People just think they're creepy. This was really good, um, but it's pretty fucked up. Yeah, good, but horribly messed up and depressing. <laughs> this what I walked away from it with. Uh, you, you you finish reading this one and you go, okay, well, I guess I'm done reading comics for the night. Also, yeah. this was the last book I read one night uh, when I was reading my uh, reading my stack, and I was like, oh, great, I, I guess I'm done now. And until tomorrow, but yeah. really good, uh, but horribly just upsetting and uncomfortable would be the way to describe it. I was just about to say that, like, yeah. this book may be physically uncomfortable reading it. It's just like, yeah, some of the stuff that happens, you're just like, oh, like, I'm just so glad that's not me. <laughs> I'm so glad I have to deal with that. The one thing is a very selfish way, Dan. The, the one thing, though, is like in the end, you know, as we get back to the present and everything, it's not really clear to me if Rudy is depressed about her life. Like it, that's not as conveyed to me. I mean, yeah. you, may, you might interpret it that way regardless, but like it kind of seems like she's like 
she's not like depressed about her current situation, um, which I almost feel in in a sense then this issue it's not it's not remotely uplifting, but it's not quite as dour and depressing an ending as the first issue where the guy is just like totally off his rocker and his you know perception of reality is messed up for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah, I. Well, I, yeah, I get that, but also, but like you know, upon because uh, we don't have the inside look to her enough because we're we're just the viewer watching. You can't not look at it and go, well, "That's just horribly sad and upsetting." Like that's yeah. the thing about it. But yeah, I'll just leave it on all of us as I go into King and Black number four. I don't have a lot to say on it. Uh, Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman, J.P. Maron inks. Uh, this is the big heroes turn the tide issue. Dylan's being tempted by Null to join him, but not before a telepathic voice off screen is communicating with him, telling him where to make basically all the moves to get away and how he can free all the rest of the heroes. Uh, and Dylan takes advantage of it, and it's revealed to be Jean Grey. And after you know they free Doctor Strange, we see the plan is basically to use magic and lightning against Null. And the second time this week, and it's both Donny Cates. Strange like transforms himself into whatever persona he was when he was connected to Asgard. I'm not as familiar with all of that, but we do get you know footnotes to it, which is nice. So the floodgates are open and Null's getting rocked, and Gene can sense that the God of Light is wanting to try to get into Earth, but it's blocked because of Null's like shield around the Earth. But Silver Surfer can get it through, and it's revealed that it's the Enigma Force, and it's choosing Eddie as its next warrior to be Captain Universe. So uh, find out next time on Dragon Ball Z how this ends. I'm really confused because I thought in Black Cat, like, they rescued Strange from, like, that blob in the middle of the city, which is, like, where they start fighting out of. And, like, he, like they escaped and, like, went down to, like, the like the roads of, like, New York. Like So they were away from, like, the epicenter of it. So, like, I'm really confused why Strange is back in that spot. Like, does that make I, sense? We- Yes, but also like I don't know if you you might have missed an issue of Black Cat. I don't I can't remember if there was an issue last week or not. But but I mean, at some point, all the heroes at least they they did enough a good job in the other books I read that like at some point all the heroes that were left were the ones in the hospital with Dylan, and Doctor Strange and Black Cat were not them. But no, I definitely get that because you know that's the notion of these giant miniseries with a giant event there nothing's ever going to truly be consistent which is a problem yeah. i'll give you that yeah it's annoying i'm kind of bored to be honest by the series um and again i put some of that on you know not reading venom which is obviously very central to this but i just like i don't find noel remotely interesting like his name is almost ironic because i don't care and we get we do get a bit of a backstory here which is probably the first time but it's just nonsense, you know, ultra old cosmic stuff. And that doesn't change anything for me. There is a really great page with Jean Grey. Um, there's like one panel or where Spider-Man has a really great, great swinging pose. He's got the Todd, the Todd rip on the face mask where it's just, or just his mouth's out. Well, I'm talking about, yeah, I mean, Otley draws him well regardless, but I'm talking about there's, it's just literally just one drawing of him where he's swinging. And I just thought the pose was good. Yeah. Um, as far as the body. But yeah, I, and then like, I don't fully understand what's going on with Dr. Strange here. And I don't really care. 
uh, yeah, this kind of is like a Dragon Ball Z thing. And in, in a little bit of a sense, it reminds me of uh, like what Snyder was doing on Justice League and whatever those dumb events were, which I guess that's kind of the vibe in comics right now is these like metal exaggerated over the top, you know, events that are, you know, the stakes get ever higher, like yeah. Dragon Ball Z. I kind of losing steam on this well i think there's only one or two issues left so it'll wrap up soon start off really well i thought yeah i mean i like this more than at the end of the day i'm going to like this more than war of the realms or empire because i feel empire never even got out of the starting gate honestly this at least got out of the starting gate and maybe tripped but got out of the starting gate because i i'm even like vince like oh that's that's cool he's pulling in captain universe the enigma force but really, at this point, I just want to know what uh, he's going to do with Eddie after this, because technically still right now, Eddie is dead. The Enigma Force, I'm assuming, definitely can give him his life back. But like Venom got destroyed. Like, I'm wondering what are the pieces to pick up after this, because Kate's isn't sticking on Venom that much longer after this book. So I'm, I'm guessing he's going to have to put all the toys back in the toy box, as you say, uh, when we're going to get a new writer eventually. But. Overall, uh, I think it'll stick the finale and it'll be good. That's all I really got to say left on it. Guardians of the Galaxy, which is not tying into uh, King and Black. It's doing its own thing. It's counting down to the, the relaunch. Yes, indeed. So our next issue, as Mike mentioned, is Guardians of the Galaxy number 11. Written by Al Ewing, art by Juan Cabal, colors by Federico Blee. Uh, our issue opens to Nova reflecting about Annihilation flashbacks, I guess. I still haven't read it, even though it's sitting on my shelf over here. I just, uh, I have to say, Dan, this whole issue to you is going to be, like, so confusing if you haven't read Annihilation. It's all Annihilation con callbacks. Well, just give me, like, give me a couple days to read Annihilation, and I can redo the summary. Anyways, he then tells about how the Olympians are coming. Uh, Nova is then seen talking to Doc Samson, I think, when Gamora shows up and yells at Pete for his death and then eventual resurrection. Because, you know, what relationship is complete without Gamora yelling at Pete, Peter? Uh, anyways, meanwhile, Phyla and Moondragon have an argument about eavesdropping into other people's minds. Uh, Pete then tells Nova not to worry about how he got Pete killed in the gods first encounter going back to i think like the first or second issue with the olympian gods so just as the two characters are finishing up hugging we see gamora pointing towards like some weird cloud or something in the sky and then the olympian gods have arrived and the guardians must team up and face them so we get some cool like two little splash pages at the end like well not really full page splash pages but you know, some group shots of the Olympians and the Guardians. So next issue will be a giant face-off between the Guardians and the Olympians. So I don't know why it took us 12 issues to get to this point, but I am glad that we are seeing this. So well, we had to, Al Ewing had to take a pit stop and he's basically bringing all the old cosmic stuff back because the guardians kind of got movie eyed movie sized or whatever. Take, you know what word I'm trying to say? Yeah. Uh, movie, movie fied because they, after the movie came out, they adopted more and more of the, the movie persona and lost all of the, uh, all of the buildup from the giant cosmic saga that, you know, Abnett and landing and did for like a decade. 
and Ewing's bringing a lot of that back, but also he rewrote all of Star-Lord's origin and basically blended the two of them together into one being now. So that's interesting, but also like it's counting down, like the book's kind of getting, I don't think it's changing numbering. It might, but it's getting like a relaunch because the team, I don't know if you saw the promo, like if the team's going to be like 20 members deep, like Doom's going to be on it. Super Scroll's going to be around. They're basically going to be like a giant, like actual guardians force that are going to be going around everywhere. I'm kind of down for it because I want to see like a team this big, how Ewing's going to, you know, balance that. But, uh, you know, he's been building up the the Olympians for a while. I'm, I'm excited to see what they do. It's It's definitely got, you know, annihilation shades but i don't i don't think it's going to quite hit on that well we'll see what ewing has planned but overall it's it is good yeah i agree previously on x-men we'll go into x-men corner so this is where we say bye to dan marauders number 18 marauders 18 jerry duggan stefano caselli and matteo Lolli. i i can't remember who did what pages but this is Emma and the Marauders are setting down in Madripoor and like buying up a bunch of property so the Hellfire Club can't get it. And they're basically like trying to help open the borders and the relations by building a hospital, which Emma names after Moira. And it makes uh, Magneto and Charles cry. Uh, the Hellfire Club like launch counterattack plans and they're unleashing a new batch of Reavers onto Madripoor to basically run the Marauders out, but also basically cause bad PR for the mutants to get them barred from docking the ship back in Madripoor. So the team's going to have to basically get creative and go back as, you know, they discovered they've been set up by the Hellfire Club, but now they're no longer allowed in Madripoor. So we'll, we'll see how it all works out. Uh, I like this. Uh, yeah, it was kind of like a down issue. I mean, I, I say that like, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but only because like all the hype around these X-Men books, we kind of expect that, you know, big things are happening. I don't really know, but this was fine. I also felt like the art was a little bit of a down issue as well. I don't like, I think Loli is supposed to like Loli is the artist on the series. And then Caselli's like the backup, but I felt oddly and granted, I have no idea when I last read an issue, let alone one by those, you know, different specific artists. But I felt like this, the art here was like a step down from both of them separately. And I wasn't paying much attention. Like I couldn't, honestly tell you who was doing which pages and stuff like that maybe it was obvious maybe it wasn't but the art wasn't you know top tier on this issue and then the one thing that stood out to me was there's a really cool sequence where mask who's you know one of these obscure x-men characters gets he like cures a a child's um cleft lip with his powers and that gets into a weird like tricky situation for superhero comics I mean, obviously, superheroes are saving people all the time. That's kind of them by definition. And this isn't ultimately that much different from that. And and the current status quo of the X-Men is, like, behind the scenes, they're just, like, improving everything about the world, you know, with all their medicines and everything. Yeah, they but have, we have answer now. Yeah, but we haven't seen that much of that on the page. Um, you know, like, we haven't gotten a bunch of, like, you know, human stories of people, you know, having their cancer cured and their families rejoicing and everything like that so i feel like this is the closest thing we've had to that and people always joke about like you know why is professor xavier in a wheelchair when reed richards tony Stark, hank pym professor xavier all exist in the world like just cure your legs bro and like sometimes they've done that through the years but it becomes this like weird situation where 
you're just getting like a little bit too close to reality and like these heroes are, are too too able to like just miraculously fix things and it it slightly breaks the immersion and and also like there's like weird dynamics where it's like how does that reflect on real life you know people in healthcare in the real world and things like that it's not quite like the invaders killing hitler which is like the very very extreme example that i sometimes go to and that's tied up in like you know soldiers and war and everything like that but it was just a weird thing that stood out to me i felt like kind of commenting on it a bit yeah it it it's because like i I think you're right because we know that they have drugs that cure cancer but that's not this is one of the few times like you said that we actually see the effects that the mutants are trying though i mean it's quickly dispersed because now they can't go back to madripoor which is where mask was you know operating in this hospital they just opened up so that's well my other that's my other thing was like was mask just supposed to cure everyone there i i i'm not entirely sure what was supposed to be the point of that but overall like i mean duggan's got to be building to something we know storm is leaving the team in a dramatic fashion in a few issues I think it's either like 19 or 20, but also it feels like Storm has hardly been a part of the team in the first place. So, I mean, it's my favorite of the X-Men books, but also it's like, it's not without its faults here and there, but still, you know, a good series. And now uh, we'll transition to the 90s, where I know you have uh, two two novels worth of notes here. Please don't take 20 minutes, because I'm going to leave it on both of us so you don't. I'll get through it quickly. I'll just say one last thing on Marauders is, you know, the first, you know, six months of the new X line or whatever, we would often rank the series. Um, and Marauders was often towards the top for both of us. I feel like recently Marauders has like slightly notched down. And I would definitely put X, probably X-Force as my top tier book at the moment. Um, and I think that's relatively recent over the past. I mean, we're at 18. So probably over the past 10 issues or so, I feel like it's slightly lost its steam could round up and just say post x of swords yes all right so x-men legends number one the concept of this book is like continuity fixing or sequels to decades old stories stuff like that think like x-men forever but not just claremont and not like super extended and stuff like that but it's kind of similar per a footnote this issue takes place after x-men number 39 which means right before legion quest and therefore you know before age of apocalypse and this is written by Fabian Nicieza, who, you know, in the real original timeline gets fired off of X-Men with issue 45, which when you factor in Age of Apocalypse is like a year after this. And the art here is by Brett Booth. There's a caption about Scott's powers not generating heat when he's introduced, which I'd applaud regardless and point out. But it's also kind of like part of this silly Cape Fabe Twitter beef that Nicieza has with Gail Simone where Gail Simone just trolls about Cyclops all the time. So the story here, Eric the Red has kidnapped the Summer's grandparents for a ransom, and he's looking for Adam X. Then we get a recap of Adam X's origin, and then he runs into Cable, who makes a joke about how they, they are supposed to have gone past their extreme phase, which is bolded, and you know that's referencing early X-Force and Rob Liefeld, specifically Extreme Studios, Though Adam X appears after Liefeld leaves, he's technically Tony Daniel co-created him. We also learn via footnote that this takes place after an issue of the obscure 1995 Captain Marvel series by Nicieza, 
which starred Genus Vell spinning out of Ron Mars' Silver Surfer. But that, but it was only like a five-issue series, and that character didn't catch on until a couple years after this, coming out of Avengers Forever uh, under Peter David writing him. Hepzibah and Raza Longknife of the Starjammer show up, and they're trying to nab Adam as well. But then Scott and Alex show up to also nab Adam, but at odds with the Starjammers. And the big tease here is that they block Adam's powers and vice versa. So they're like, what's going on? And obviously, Scott and Alex, they have you know, understood why their powers are blocked. So there's a question here. And then Corsair, uh, Alex and Scott's father, shows up and obviously the leader of the Starjammers. And he says, say hello to your brother. So this does claim to be 100% canon, but we'll see as it goes along because obviously, you know, like I said, the entire point of the series is that, you know, in, in the 90s, there was this tease of the third Summers brother. It was something that Mr. Sinister set up and I don't remember specific issues and stories when, when it was started. And then it was teased along the way and it was highly speculated that it was going to be Adam X. For a short, brief period, somehow it was potentially going to be Gambit, but it pretty much like the, the storylines and the community basically settled on. It's it's supposed to be Adam X, but again, Nisius got fired, and then there was just all kinds of you know shenanigans in the X Men line. You know, as you move into the end of the '90s, and obviously then totally different directions as you move forward. So it was never resolved, and that's what this is. But the thing is, it was resolved or redone years later by Ed Brubaker with X-Men Legacy? I don't, I don't No, I don't remember what it's called. Deadly... Rise and Fall of Sheer Empire. With, that was Vulcan. Well, no, the miniseries before, Deadly, Deadly, Deadly something. Deadly Genesis? Maybe. I think that's right. Um, which introduced Vulcan, who was fully revealed as the third Summers brother. So, does this mean there are four Summers brother? Is Vulcan going to be retconned? Is, is this going to ultimately be a fake out? You know, in order to fit continuity, who knows? This is a very convenient read after the latest issue of X-Men, which Brett Booth also drew. But obviously, he fits way more here perfectly. Uh, and it is, it is interesting to point out that the, the artist on X-Men, which this is like essentially supposed to be like X-Men 39.5 or whatever. The artist on X-Men at this point would be Andy Kubert on X-Force, which was Nisi's other book, was Tony Daniel, as mentioned. And the artist on Captain Marvel, which is tangentially related to this, was Ed Benes. So, you know, Brett Booth totally feels like falls in that kind of lane, totally in sync with that era. Though it is neat to note that his career was off the ground already at that point. He was drawing backlash for Wildstorm. Uh, the next issue concludes this Adam X thing. And then we're going to get some X Factor from Walton Wheezy Simonson. So I was kind of apprehensive about this series like if it was going to be really worth reading if i really care like to have a continuity porn book but i'll take it uh this was pretty enjoyable i'm i'm happy this is only going two issues i feel like if it was beyond that i would like quickly be like all right we don't need more than that for this uh the brett booth art uh looked good uh i enjoyed it uh it's fun seeing the classic costumes again but even more so like even down to like you know the lettering on the pages, the caption boxes, it all looks like something you would get in that era. I like that they're trying to maintain the facade that this is, you know, a lost gem uh, from that era. And it's now just, you know, shown up in 2021. It's not like a, 
it doesn't look modernized. It looks very much placed in the era that it's supposed to be in, which is good. And then that's something I hope they continue with when they do, you know, the other creators on this. Whether that's to be, you know, we'll see if that's the case. But I know, I mean, Simonson's drawing with uh, with Wheezy writing for the next one. So I'm sure uh, they'll get creative and it'll still look like, you know, what would that be like 80s X Factor? I'm sure it'll, I'm sure it'll look, it, hopefully it looks like 80s. Um, but yeah. when it gets on, I'm guessing it'll be LaRocca and it'll look meh. Yeah, I'm kind of intrigued to see, you know, I mean, I believe Marvel has like technically said, at least for the moment, that this is quote unquote ongoing. You know, yeah. who the hell knows what that means. <laughs> but if this lasts a long while and they keep digging into some things, I'm very interested to see like what they pull in. Because like this first thing was like the obvious, you know, plot line. There, There's like a... It's, it's from like way back in the day, like a Usenet forum or something. There's some page somewhere on the internet where it's like a list of all of these dangling or dropped plot lines from X-Men, because of course X-Men fans would do that, like all kinds of Claremont things in the, in the 90s and things like that. But this is probably the most infamous one, you know, the third summer's brother. And I'm not certain exactly what the sciences are doing. And yeah, I don't remember if they've announced it. I'm, I think they have announced that Claremont's doing something. Who knows what that's going to be? Hopefully it's not revealing Sabretooth as Wolverine's dad or any nonsense like that. But we'll see. And if, if it if it really keeps going, it'd be really interesting to see like if like really curveball options that they dive into. Like what if Ed Brubaker comes back and is like and in response to this is like, oh yeah, Vulcan was a fake out. I'm just hoping whatever that else Adams would. draws two issues because Art Adams has been working yeah. with Marvel again. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of interesting eras of X-Men and creators that they could pull in for this. Um, so I'm definitely, I mean, obviously this is kind of made for me. Yeah, I know this was, this is made for you. I mean, also, you know, fun speculation time, like it'd be fun if Paul Smith were to come back and do like an issue. It won't happen, but like, it'd be, it's fun to think like that. All right. Time for future state. And uh, I got the first of two future state books on the show this week. Future States, uh, Superman Worlds of War, number two, Philip Kennedy Johnson, Mikhail Janin, Jordi Belair. Picking right up from part one, we see the Superman on War World not giving up the fight uh, to free the slaves from Mongol and, and also refusing to kill the other people he's like supposed to fight in this gladiator pit. So he's like slyly cutting off the chains to, of those around him so they can like get out and free themselves. But back on Earth, uh, the one girl is, you know, leaving the the Superman uh, story group to go find the real Kent farm because the one that they're saying is the Kent farm has like been co-opted as like a tourist attraction. The real one's like a couple miles down the road. And she's joined by one of the group where she reveals like it wasn't Superman or Spider, but was like the work of Clark Kent. Uh, and she reveals an article that he wrote about like a tireless civil servant who sadly died alone in a homeless shelter, but never gave up trying to serve his community as it's juxtaposed with images of uh Superman not giving up and trying to save as many people as he can. Eventually, like he's captured, and it, I guess he's killed by Mongol, but Mongol just keeps bringing him back to life. There's a there's there's a there's a line about that, but he can't uh, like it, basically Mongol's like I you know you can't keep doing this. Eventually, I'm going to kill you. But Superman's like I'm going to keep freeing as many people as possible, and eventually, I'll have enough to have an uprising and get these people out of here and be free from you. And I kind of like that tone for Superman, like. There's moments where Superman can get serious and it's like, all right, like you don't want to mess with them. That was one of those moments for me. I really like what Philip Kennedy Johnson has 
like this handle on this character. So I'm very excited for his run. So he definitely, you know, he definitely gets and understands Superman for me. So looking forward to those upcoming, you know, dual runs on action and Superman since they're not splitting up the writing team again. Um, though we are left with the T to be continued tag. And I guess this is going to end in the future state house of L one shot. All right. I'll stick around the ride on this because uh, he's won me over. But guys, what do you think of this one? Because we liked the first one. I don't know. Future State's just kind of burning out for me, so. The art was nice. Okay, but, I mean, this is the writer who's taking over Superman, so that's more the ones you should be paying closer attention to. But I understand the Future State burnout. I, I, really, I really like this. I thought the, the Superman segment is cool, obviously, you know, very typical Superman, you know, non-lethal thing, but the, the rest of it was great as well. I really like kind of this Clark Kent take and kind of my sideways critique of this is that the way that that article was interlaced, I just couldn't help but compare it to some of the ways that Tom King has tried to interlace certain things like, you know, poetry or Bible verses or, you know, whatever he was doing in that Lobo story. And this was so much better executed. And I think a lot of it was that, you know, when you had the pages where you had excerpts from the article, you didn't have a ton of other captions or extensive dialogue between those, you know, those two kids. You just had occasional comments and it was all in service, directly in service of the excerpts from the article. It was directly connected. It was less, you know, let, I don't know, I can't think of the right word, but, you know, King's thing, it's not 100% connected. It's more like thematic. So it, it does feel very jarring switching from them sometimes. But this, the flow to me was just really perfect. There's so also a, like a line. There's a there's a line where you could definitely infer that it's a shot at Bendis when the girl's like he never needed to reveal his identity. Like it's hard for me not to read it as that. I but he, Philip Kennedy Johnson's already said that he's not retconning that. He's everything that Bendis do, did. He's sticking with. He's not getting rid of it, which is you know disappointing on two fronts for me. With the, the aging up of John and uh, the revealing of the identity thing. But I mean, if this is the Superman we're getting in tone going forward, I'm excited. So I at least I got that to say. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't read it that way, but agree definitely that, you know, I don't totally like the status quo currently, but Johnson has totally sold me on his kind of interpretation of the character. And then as far as future state burnout and everything, I don't know hundred percent like, you know, I didn't fully read into, you know, DC's publishing plans and stuff like that. I'm not really sure how this shift over to House of L number one is going to work. I don't know if, you know, we're going to get a totally different perspective. Who knows um, if it's even Johnson? I don't even really know. He, no, he's he has a story in there. I'm guessing this is yeah. just a continuation of it. It's another it's another one of those ones that has like five stories in it, I think. So that then that's the question. Did any of us read any of the backups in this issue? I looked at the I Mr. Miracle art and it was nice. I'll, I guess I'll read that book when it's out, but I, I'm so burnt out that I'm not reading any backups. I'm reading my main feature and I'm done. Yep, same. And I mean, I, me and you didn't even read this next book. It's just Dan who did this one. Yes, so I believe this is the conclusion of this Future State book. So next issue here is Future State, the next Batman number four, written by John Ridley. Art by Laura Braga, Nick Darrington on breakdowns. So 
Batman is able to stop the couple that is trying to kill him in the church. Uh, they agree to allow Batman to transport them to City Hall. They have to travel 32 blocks to get there. So they get into like this car, and while driving there, they are attacked by the peacekeepers and the magistrate and are able to fend them off thanks to the man and of the couple who actually sacrifices himself with an explosive that Batman gave him gave to him prior. Uh, eventually, though, the peacekeepers and the magistrate show up, and Batman's mom as well, who is a cop, she shows up and tries to stop Batman, where Batman shows up and actually throws a shuriken at her and kind of like disables her kind of sparing her from getting more involved and possibly getting killed in the crossfire. So Batman is able to defeat the lead peacekeeper thug and deliver the woman to the city hall to be tried for murdering the man who murdered her daughter. Uh, Back at the hospital, Batman sits with his mom in the hospital. I don't know why I said that twice. Uh, Who is actually recovering and then condemns masks, like the people who wear masks as Batman, obviously. Uh, holds her hand the character who is batman which i I, again name escapes me i forget what his name is but isn't that bad the main character of this book i don't know what i can't remember what his name is well you can barely talk so it's jace fox so okay yeah i'm sorry i'm a little tired right now but i didn't read any backups because at this point i just want this to be over and yeah this was all right is it not over? Is there another it's, issue of this? No, it, it's four issues, but there's a digital series. Well, yeah, I know there's. So it's it's over, but it's not. I flipped through this, and it's yeah, it's a lackluster ending. Like nothing happens in this entire book. So it's, does it does it feel like a conclusion to a story at all? No, I, I mean, in, no, it doesn't. Yeah, it didn't really. It has to be a story first for it to be an end to a story. Jesus. <laughs> remember remember when the Banditos gang showed up? The the Bang gang? They weren't they weren't there at all after issue one. Yeah. Again, we've said it to death, but the first issue I, I mean I mostly really liked, but it was all on the art, and then they just yeah. completely pulled the rug out from under that. Dan Dan was not with us last week, but we got a double dose of really, really good John Ridley content last week. So we're at least I've taken the notion that this book was kind of an editorial mess while John Ridley's out there doing other better work on other things. So I don't put this on Ridley. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't either. This is just bad planning. It's just poorly executed. Like, it's a fine, competent comic book. Like, it's, a, but at the end of the day, like, I'm not putting it on its best day, I'm not putting it above a seven out of 10 when it's really a six. All right. Final issue of the night. Yes, the big 300 from Fantastic Four, uh, Marvel's foundational title, and at this point, it's still one of its biggest in the era. This is from March 1987. Um, Roger Stern, all right, so John Byrne's run ends just a couple issues before this. Roger Stern is the main writer in this like awkward gap before Steve Englehart takes over, and I guess Stern just got stuck with the anniversary issue. Art here is by John and Sal Buscema, who are both listed together as just artists. There's no distinction of inking or even breakdowns finishes. Some pages totally look like Sal. I'm not necessarily going to say that some totally look like John, but I don't know what was going on. 
And it's not an oversized issue either. Uh, everyone is getting ready or dealing with the upcoming wedding of Johnny Storm and Alicia Masters, all in their different ways. Ben is bummed. He runs into the Yancey Street gang. Dr. Doom is gardening and scheming how he's going to get involved with the wedding. Reporters are all over it. There's a fun scene where Johnny visits uh, Robbie Robertson. Then the puppet master, who is, of course is Alicia's dad, or I think he's technically her stepfather, uh, the thinker and the wizard, they obviously have grudges against all these characters. So they're going to team up and crash the wedding. But puppet master at the last second bails in the plan. He manipulates Dr Dragon Man to turn on his allies. And it turns out that Doom ends up sending just, he just sends them flowers, but it's like a little bit of a threat. And ultimately this is an all right issue, but at the time was a very controversial plot line. It, you know, the Johnny and Alicia relationship is this melodramatic seed that's planted by burn. And then it grows into this wedding and then it blooms into the even more controversial retcon under Tom DeFalco when this Alicia is actually revealed to be the scroll Elijah who is now showing back up again in Slot's run. And there's a big storyline tease related to her and Johnny coming soon. Um, but I kind of prefer that she was, a, a lot of people hated it, but I like that she was revealed as a scroll because I don't like Johnny and Alicia at all. Alicia belongs with Ben. And Slot did, uh, you know, cemented that too. So this is like low-key kind of like an advertisement for both Tom DeFalco's Fantastic Four available in Epic Collections and Dan Slott's current run. It was just kind of a fine issue, and I will mute myself and let you guys talk as sirens blare by me. Uh, yeah, that's a great way to end the show. Oh my god, the the light behind you. That's hilarious. I can't. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it's To me, it's like, yeah, it's a fine, competent Roger Stern written comic book. If anything, to look at the art, I felt the biggest John Buscema images to me were the thing, while everything else kind of more so looked like Sao to me. Um, but like you said, it's kind of hard to make a clear distinction. But overall, like it's a fine issue. It, 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 I guess it's more noteworthy, noteworthy that it's 300 and there's not a big celebration. I mean, there is a wedding that happens in it, so that's you know that's what gets the the big anniversary stopper, but. It's not oversized or anything. It's very different from what we'd see now of a book hitting 300. Yeah. And I don't know, like for me at least, this doesn't feel like a book that from 1987. Like this feels like, this feels like the, like the mid seventies, just the way it's like written and the panels are laid out. And I don't know. I, I something about it. It's just, yeah, I think some of that has to do with this kind of like stopgap period that it's in the middle of that I mentioned. And obviously, you know, if you were reading Fantastic Four at the, at the time, you probably felt exactly how Dan just stated because you were coming off of John Byrne. Um, so it, it is, it's a really weird period. And it's strange that this major event and this anniversary issue is smack in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It's it's a weird place because this is yeah, like you said, it's po post burn, but before Simonson, right? Yeah, this is uh, well before Simonson. So Simonson is like three thirty three to like three fifty or something around okay. that ballpark. Uh, after this is Steve Englehart, and his run gets derailed as well because um, of editorial interference. So the past the last like half year of his run 
is just basically garbage. And then you get Simonson. All right. Well, that's all the books we had in the rundown. Guys, let's quickly wrap it up. What's your pick of the week? Um, it was yours was next Batman, right? Yeah, it was next Batman. Oh, of course. It's my pick of the week because it's over. I'm going to give my – actually, I'm going to – I think it's actually tough for me this week. I'm, I'm between Superman and Ha Ha, and I will give it to Superman. You're going to give it to Superman? Dan, do you want to just actually say it so we have it on record? It's Iron Man number six? Yes, Iron Man okay. number six is oh, my pick of the week. P-O-T. Okay. I'm going to go mostly for the art because I really liked it. Um, I'm going to go with the Immortal Hulk flatline, number one, with my runner-up probably being Superman and then Iron Man in my third. So that's that's all we have for you this week. As as the sirens blare in the background, we'll stay safe out there. Uh, you know, it's snowstorms. Watch when you go outside. Keep wearing your mask. You know, take proper precautions. Watch out for ice. That can be bad. Stay safe until until next time. See ya.